Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1-7, and Chapter 11, 1-5. Through song, God expresses his heartbreak because of Israel's betrayal, announcing the devastating consequences, along with the promise of the one who will rightly restore all things for eternity. I wish we could start with Isaiah 11. What a beautiful passage. But we've got to deal with Isaiah 5 first. So if you haven't, turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to look at both of these passages pretty closely and examine the words that are offered there. I want you to notice something in Isaiah 5 that though it is there in black and white, you may have at first missed. I know I did when I first read it. Do you notice that Isaiah chapter 5, at least that first portion, is a song? Do you see that? I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. This passage is a song, and it's a song about betrayal. Lots of songs are about betrayal. Do you ever think about that? I mean, really, most of our modern songs, I don't know about most, but a lot of our modern songs are all about betrayal. And if we're going to grasp this passage as I think God's Spirit intends this morning, we have to grasp it as a song in order to help us do that. And in an attempt to have a little bit of fun, I want us to think through some of the modern songs that lift up uh, this concept of betrayal. Because, you know, they're not just country music songs, though I think that's what a lot of you are thinking. All sorts of genres throughout all generations have songs about betrayal. Like this one. Listen to this song. Who is this singing? Taylor Swift. Did you hear that last line? The worst thing I ever did was what I did to you. Now, I can see by some of your faces you're going, Taylor who? Right? Taylor Swift today is the most famous artist. She is the Michael Jackson, the Elvis Presley, right? And she has made a whole career singing songs about betrayal. I think every other song she sings is about betrayal. But she's not the only one. The artist Rihanna, she sang at a recent Super Bowl. She sings this. Listen to this song. And I know that he knows I'm unfaithful and it kills him inside to know that I am happy with some other guy. I can see him dying. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the reason why. 
You hear, Rihanna sings as the betrayer. What she's saying is like, I'm with this guy, and I'm telling him I'm about to go to the grocery store, but I know, and he knows I'm not going to the grocery store. I'm betraying him, and I don't want to do this anymore. To which we go, well, then why are you still doing it? But then all of us can relate, because there are times we've done that. I mean, her words echo the Apostle Paul's words. Remember in Romans chapter 7 where he goes, why do I do what I do not want to do? I just keep doing this. So Rihanna sings as the betrayer. All right, hold on to your seat for this next one, right? I see a little pocket of Gen Xers right back there, Jake and Phil. So you, I hope, will appreciate this one as I do because this was our song of betrayal. Go ahead. Gen X music's really good, right? Who is that? Bon Jovi, right, right. And he gives voice to the anger that is often found in songs about betrayal, right? Sometimes the songs are about the one who was betrayed. Sometimes they're, they're given from the voice of the betrayer. Oftentimes they, they give voice to the anger that's there. All right, now some of you are going, I don't know any of these artists, right? You probably know this next one. In fact, let me just set it up and you can, you can guess it. From the 1960s, Marvin Gaye sang a song all about betrayal. What was it? Heard it through the grapevine. Here it is, yeah. Just a small part. I bet you wonder how I do. I'll show hands to make me blue. With some other guy you knew before. Like, we groove to songs like that, but then you recognize, man, he's in pain. You ever do that? You're singing along to a song, you have no idea what they're actually saying, and when you learn, you go, oh my gosh, what am I doing? But songs of betrayal are, of course, often coming from the one who's being betrayed. Poor Marvin, right? He's in love, and she's stepping out on betraying it. He doesn't, she doesn't even tell him. He hears it from someone. Oh my gosh. Terrible. All right, last one. This is the most interesting, I think. So here's the story in this song of a guy. He's with a gal. He's interested in this other gal. So he's about to betray the one he's with in order to be with her. But before he does that, he wants to make sure she's not going to betray him like he's about to betray her because he doesn't think his heart can take it. Any of you know this song? 
You will. Let's play it. So I hope you see that I would love to love you and that she will cry when she learns we are two if I fell in love with you. Who's that? Beatles, of course, of course. There's all sorts of songs about betrayal. Why do you think it is that, that betrayal is so often the subject of song? Don't you think it's because all of us, in some manner or another, face what it feels like to experience betrayal? Sometimes we're betrayed, sometimes we're the betrayer. Often it's in a love relationship, but it doesn't just have to be that. It could be from a friend, it could be with your children, it could be in the workplace. I've given you 30 years of my life, and this is the way you treat me. It could be in the life of your own church, right? All of us have experienced betrayal, and so song enables us to take hold of and express the reality of what that feels like in a way that written or spoken word cannot. Isn't that true of music? Music, song, enables us to take hold of and express the reality of something like betrayal in a, in a way that the written word cannot. And so it is God, through his prophet Isaiah, gives his people a song. And unless we receive it as a song, I don't think we're going to be able to grasp it at the heart level that God intends. See, song is the language of heartbreak. And Isaiah 5 helps us see that. Thankfully, however, song is not just the language of heartbreak. It's also the language of hope. And Isaiah 11 Though it's not given to us as a song, I hope and believe you will recognize provides all the material for some of the most beautiful songs we ever sing. And so together, let's, let's look at these closely. Isaiah chapter 5 first and then Isaiah chapter 11. Let me pray for a moment before we do. Lord God, we do, I hope, recognize how often Betrayal informs the songs that we sing and the songs that we love. There's something in song that helps us recognize at a heart level this deep, hard, compelling feeling. Would you this morning, Holy Spirit, help us do more than understand? Would you try to help, would you help us grasp at a heart level what you are saying to us. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So Isaiah 5 is a song of betrayal, and so we can look at it, much like I had to those, those previous songs. Bill and I, I want to thank Bill. Bill worked with me pretty hard on putting those lists together. We had to examine lyrics, do all of that, and so thank you, Bill, for that. I spent a lot of time looking at those lyrics, and I want to look at the scripture in the same manner. 
to study the lyric and the story and to understand. And if we do that, we'll begin to see, at least at the outset, the context for this song of betrayal. The initial context is one of, of beauty. It's a, it's a pleasant scene. You know, picture a wedding where you're gathering because you anticipate celebrating love. Or maybe another scene that might help would be picture two lovers in the park. You know, they're sharing a picnic. This one helps me. I, believe it or not, uh, my wife and I, Stacy, used to do this. Rising Park in Lancaster, Ohio. I'd make a picnic lunch. I made a mixtape. That's what Gen Xers do, right? Come out. And there we are. And I would, this was before we had children and a mortgage on a house, I would sing. I would sing to her. I think it was Peter Cetera usually I would sing to her. But, but here we have one singing. And you've got to receive it that way. I will sing for the one I love. Right? A song about his vineyard. I, I can't sing. But, but you can picture it, right? It's just this pleasant day. And as the song goes on, this vineyard is given as a metaphor for the object of love. See, love here is not just a feeling. It's not just affection. You see in the verse the work and sacrifice expressed in this love. A love that chooses a field and digs it up and clears it of stones and plants choice vines, builds a watchtower for protection and a wine press we're ready to go and then faithfully continues to labor and wait until the good fruit is born. And it takes a while, right? Jim has vines, right? It takes a while for grapes to produce. There's patience. You got to wait. But finally, the grapes begin to come. And the verse says at the end of verse 2, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only what? Bad fruit. So we go to the next verse of the song. In the song of betrayal, we ask, who's to blame? If it's not already obvious, God is the one who planted and tended the vineyard. Sometimes it's hard to see that. The, the, the language is a little tricky, as is often true in songs. But make no mistake, it is God who plants the vineyard. And through his prophet, he says to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, Hey, you be the judge. You be the judge between me and my vineyard. Could I have done anything more? And again, hear it in song in your ear. It is, a, it is a rhetorical question full of sadness and anger and frustration and confusion and lament. What more could I have done? Is this my fault? God says to the people of Jerusalem and Judah, what's the answer? Could God have done any more? No. No. And so, verses 5 and 6 express the consequences. Probably to the melody of Bon Jovi, I think, is the anger. Here's what I'm going to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy what I have spent so much time and so much heart building. I'm going to take away the hedge, break down the wall, trample the vines, 
I'm going to make it a wasteland. I'm not going to waste any more time pruning, cultivating. I'm going to hold back the clouds. There's not going to be any rain here. It will be desolate. Verse 7 brings us to the conclusion. The people of Judah and Jerusalem are listening. And Isaiah says, who is the vineyard? It's you, nation of Israel. It's you, O people of Judah. They are the vineyard that have betrayed the love of their God. Now, you'll remember from the past few weeks, we have two nations now. Israel was in view last week. It was Hosea, Pastor Jason helped us see, Hosea that spoke to the ten tribes of Israel and helped them recognize they were the ones who had betrayed their God. And if it's not already obvious to you, now Isaiah is speaking to Judah the exact same message. Like a song we play over and over and over again because our heart is sick so we hear again the same message. I could have had Jason just come up and preach again. It's the same message. And yet this time given in song. In the hopes that we wouldn't just understand it here, but grasp it here at heart level. For even you, Judah, the ones I delighted in. Remember David? The one I love, the one I made a covenant with, even you. God says, I looked for the fruit of justice and righteousness that he had worked so hard to nurture. What did he see? Only bloodshed, only distress. Songs are often a metaphor, but make no mistake, this is not just a metaphor. This is prophecy fulfilled in history. Isaiah, or Isaiah. Israel, there it is. Israel was overrun by the Assyrian uh, military in 722. Destroyed, weighed, uh, waylaid, desolate, as described here. And about 150 years later, so too was Judah and Jerusalem. In 586 B.C., overthrown by the Babylonian Empire, God's word was fulfilled. But God wasn't pleased. Note this song of betrayal is a song of a broken heart. God's broken heart. And he wants us to understand it. If you've been with us for some months, you recognize what we've been doing. We've been unfolding God's story from the beginning of Genesis and creation till now. And so if you have been with us through most of those times, you ought to be able to identify with what God is saying when he calls out, could I have done anything more? I mean, review in your mind the path that we have walked. God created the world. 
and he made it good, and he, and he created this extra special place, and he created human beings, and he put it in there, and he gave them all, and he said, just love me, and trust me, and follow me, and they did what? Turned. He wasn't done yet, though. In order to redeem his people, he chose, for reasons we don't understand, certainly not because of him, he chose Abraham and one nation, and he said, I am going to bless you. He chose them. He led them. He provided for them. And what did they do? God said, I, I, I gave you quail. I gave you manna. I gave you food. I gave you blessing. I gave you protection. I forgave you. I freed, for you, freed you. I protected you. I fought for you. I've done everything for you. I sent priests and prophets and kings. I gave you commands all that you might know me and this life for which you were created. And you did what? And he calls out to them, what more could I have done? And so he gives them over to the ambition of their heart. And friends, you and I need to read this not simply as a history lesson, but as a commentary on our own life. For Israel's story is our own story. Who among us cannot see the hand of God in your life that has drawn you into relationship with himself? How did you make it here? How did you first come to know God? It wasn't because you were profoundly holy, because you made some sort of choice. I'm sure all of us could articulate this wonderful mystery that somehow God drew me to himself. All of us could share stories about God's blessing and God's protection, God's providence, God's amazing grace in our life, and yet what do we do? I'll only speak for myself. Too often, my response is ingratitude. Hey, God, that's not enough. Failure to trust. Yeah, I know you did that, all that back there, but I don't, I don't think you're going to do this. Arrogance. <laughs> do you know how good a pastor you have? I mean, seriously, do you know? You should. Injustice, compromised spirit. God, God has loved us, served us, forgiven, provided, protected, exercised patience and hope. What more could he have done? Sometimes suggesting that people are without excuse. That there is nothing more that God could do that someone would object and they'll say, yeah, but wait, 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 wait. If God would have prevented this, quote unquote, from happening, then I might believe. And you can define this, right? Some terrible tragedy in their life, some disappointment, some, something like that. 
I think we need to take that objection seriously if we are suggesting that the point of this song is true, that there's nothing more that God could have done to demonstrate his love for us. There is a story in the Old Testament, for some reason it is never included in the schedule that we've been following for the past four years, this thing called the narrative lectionary. It is is the story of Job. Do you know that story? Job is never in that, and I've wondered why. And I think it's important here, if you don't know Job's story, here it is in brief. Job was a man who loved God and showed it by the way he lived his life. For reasons unknown to Job, he began to suffer deeply. Disease, loss of family, destruction of business, all of these things. Sufferings that all of us could only imagine. He responded mostly with patience, trust, and faithfulness. But you know, everybody has their limit. And so finally, if you wanted to jot this down as a note, in chapter 31, verse 35, we see Job doing what many have done, maybe what you have done. He says, why, God? Why are you letting this happen? I didn't do anything to deserve this. I don't understand. Answer me, God. Ever done that? At least in your spirit. God responds. Though Job's accusation only takes a few verses, God's response covers four chapters. (laughs) Chapters 38 through 41. God says to Job, all right, I'll answer you. Literally, brace yourself, Job. And he begins by saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? Where were you when I set the stars in the sky? Where were you when I put the waves in rhythm? Where were you when I created all that there is? That is to say, when when Job faced this pain and suffering, God met it head on. With grace, recognize that because God could have just zapped Job right there and said, you're done. No, he met it with grace, but with a steadfast conviction that he is God and Job is not. And he had done everything required to lead him into relationship with himself. Pain and suffering are often brought up as reasons that we cannot trust a good God. But, at least in my experience, they're brought up by people who are looking for a reason not to choose God. In my experience, and in Job's life, and in countless other places in the Scripture, God uses pain and suffering for those who will enter into it genuinely and authentically to draw people to himself. I've seen it with many of you. I've seen it in my own life. God's word speaks to it. Tim Keller, a pastor that I really appreciate, speaks of it this way. He says, when pain and suffering come upon us, 
we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Is this not what God desires for Israel and Judah and you and me to see that he will allow pain and suffering at its greatest magnitude in their lives so that they might finally see what they have refused to see throughout their history, that they are not in control, but he is. You are not in control. I am not in control. He is. Friends, until God's heartbreaking song of betrayal grabs us at our own heart level, we will never be able to recognize and take hold of the song of hope that so defines our faith. That's why God leads us, often through pain and suffering. So that, in the words of Isaiah 11, now turn there, we'll not be here as long, because the beauty speaks for itself. So that, out of this desolated creation, This tree that has been cut down so that there is only a seeming stump. That a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Who is Jesse? David's father. It's from this line that God himself had made a covenant with, that there would be on the throne a king everlasting. It is through this line that God says, I have not given up. I will be faithful to my own promise. And so from the stump of Jesse will come a shoot. What's a shoot? You know the shoot. This thing that grows out of what seemed to be dead, and you go, huh. I can't believe it. There's evidence of life after all. That from the roots comes now a branch, a branch that will bear fruit, but not the fruit that was born of old. The bad fruit, but no, the good. Good and perfect fruit. God's spirit will rest on this one in whom we're called to hope. For on him will be wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. These will define the one we long to know. And he'll rule like no one we have ever known. Look at verse 3. He will judge, God's word says. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Or decide by what he hears with his ears. But instead, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Let's sit there for a moment and understand what he's saying. So he's lifting up a contrast. Do you notice that? He will not judge. It's a negative contrast. So there's an implication that this one's going to be different than what came before, or the people who judged before. Who were those? Israel, Judah, you, me. How do we judge the world? How do we go about trying to determine what's right or wrong? We, we look, 
with our eyes and see, we listen with our ears and do the best we can, and it usually doesn't work, right? You think of the news reports this week. Is Hamas using a hospital as a shield? Well, I don't know. Here's an image of, of weapons. But then here's someone else saying, no, that's not the case. We see pictures with our eyes. We hear testimony with our ears. We're not supposed to check our brain at the door. We try to do the best we can to determine what is right and true and the actions that should come forward afterwards. And as a result, thousands of people die. Or on Friday, I had a guy come in to the church. He shared a story of heartache, asked for help, and I'm judging with my eyes and with my ears. Is this young man truly in need, or does he want resources to go buy drugs? I began to take steps to help him. In gratitude, he says, how come no other church I went to would help me? I said, that's because we all get taken advantage of so often. I judge by my eyes, judge with my ears. Does it work? I don't know that I could point to one person that I've ever helped in that way that their life has been fully restored to self-sufficiency and dignity. I keep helping, but I don't know that it's ever worked. See, there's a desperation that comes when we're honest and we go, we're doing the best we can. We judge by our eyes and judge by our ears. We make decisions. We had our veterans brunch last week. And one of the veterans shared, hey, I'm grateful to have served. I'm grateful for our country. I'm grateful for our military. But when are we going to learn as human beings that war will not solve it? And I saw the echo of affirmation in everyone else in the room. What's the answer to that? When the UN finally gets it right? Right? When we finally get the right people in office, when we adopt the right laws, none of that. The answer to that rhetorical question, which is not rhetorical, is only when this one expressed in Isaiah 11 returns. For on him is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, and it is by righteousness, not his eyes, not his ears, but his very being, that he will judge the earth, for it's who he is, as much as a belt is a part of who we are, or the sash signifies to whom we belong. I hope you recognize this points to the Messiah to Jesus, the one who was given in the midst of our broken heart as the solution to God's broken heart, our only source of hope. And so what do we do? Well, like the church has for 2,000 years, 
we cry out, how long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus, for without you we are without hope. We call and we pray and we live. For Jesus, the Messiah, is given to us, the church. That he lives within each one of you who has invited him in and he lives in our midst as our head that our life together, though imperfect, might begin to embody the kingdom of heaven even here on earth. There's some things that only song can express. The heartbreak of betrayal and the hope that only comes everlasting in the person of Jesus. May God himself help us to sing in our spirit and from our lips as we worship him together. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, would you help our heart to break both because of the realities around the world and because of the realities that remain within each one of us help us to recognize our own betrayal lord the countless ways you have given yourself to us and yet we turn from you even so lord help us also to believe the gospel that you do not condemn us for our betrayal but in grace and mercy have sent this Messiah this Jesus the righteous one for the unrighteous that we might be brought to you our Lord and our God help us to sing in our heart together as your body as we are here in your sanctuary and out in the world, that you, Jesus, would be glorified and honored. We pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our first Prez Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.com. Have a great week.